Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode comes from our In Conversation event, which saw Aaron Sorkin speak to Anna Asante about his latest film, The Trial of the Chicago 7. As well as answering questions from Directors UK members, Aaron discussed his approach to directing a brilliant ensemble cast, what he has and hasn't learned from his many years in the industry, and his physical approach to dialogue. We hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much and welcome to all of you today. Thank you for joining us. We really do have the great pleasure tonight to be in the company of one of the key storytellers and creators of our time. And for around 45 minutes to an hour, I have the privilege of exploring the workings of his creative mind. There will be time for you to ask Aaron your questions. So please do add those to the chat, which will be filtered to me. And I I promise I'll do my best to to convey as many as I can um, to him before we finish. So, After graduating from Syracuse University with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Theatre, Aaron had intended, of course, to pursue a career in acting, but he soon realised his talent for writing. And in 1992, he was named Outstanding American Play, uh, sorry, yes, American Playwright at the prestigious Outer Critics Circle Awards for his stage version of A Few Good Men, which later was adapted into a film and nominated for a Golden Globe. He has since gone on to write so many of the movies and TV shows that we know and love, including The President's Men and Charlie Wilson's War. And in more recent years, for writing The Social Network, Aaron scored a hat trick, taking home the Academy Award, the BAFTA Award and the Golden Globe, among many, many other wins. He followed this with his movies Moneyball and Steve Jobs. Aaron is, of course, nominated for his work on the 1998 TV show Sports Night and is Emmy winning for his work on the political drama series he created, The West Wing. In 2018, he added that hyphen to his title with his debut movie as director, Molly's Game, and this year released his second movie to critical acclaim based on the true story of events that unfolded in the 1969 trial of seven defendants charged with conspiracy to incite riots during protests against the Vietnam War. That film is The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Erin Sorking, we welcome you to Directors UK. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Erin, one of the things um, I was thinking as I was going through all of my notes today was that until I learned about your film, I absolutely knew nothing about what happened in a courtroom in 1969 in Chicago, the men involved, the entire story that at this time created enough of a storm and attention for protesters as you show in the film to be chanting, the world is watching. So, to start with, can you tell us how you learned about the project, but also a little bit about your decision to make this the second film where you would climb into the director's chair and, you know, make this the film you direct? Sure. Uh, I also knew nothing about uh, the Chicago 7. Uh, 14 years ago, in 2006, Steven Spielberg asked me to come to his house on a Saturday morning. And just to be clear, that's not common. I don't hang with Steven Spielberg. Uh, And he said he wanted to make a movie about the Chicago 7. And I said, that sounds great. Count me in. I'd love to write it. And I left his house and called my father and asked him who the Chicago 7 were. Uh, I was just saying yes to working with Steven Spielberg the way literally anyone would. Uh, So I had a lot of 
uh, research to do. There are a dozen or so good books written about the Chicago 7, some of them by the defendants themselves. There's a 21,000-page trial transcript. But most critically, I got to spend time with Tom Hayden. Hayden passed away a few years ago, but he's very much alive in 2006. And that's how I got to the, the personal tension between uh, Tom and Abby. So uh, the, the film uh, uh, kind of kept getting kicked down the road uh, and went through the hands of, of a few directors, uh, Paul Greengrass and, uh, and Ben Stiller, and I was working closely with both of them. And I, I never really stopped writing uh, uh, the script. Screenplays, screenplays generally are, are never finished. They're confiscated. Uh, uh, someone just says, pencils down, enough, we have to do this now. Uh, and what happened was uh, a confluence of two things. One, Donald Trump was elected president. Uh, and at his rallies, uh, when there'd be a protester, he'd start getting nostalgic about the good old days when they carry that guy out of here on a stretcher and I'd love to beat the crap out of him. I'd want to punch him right in the face. Uh, and then the other thing that happened was, as he said, I directed uh, for the first time, I directed Molly's Game. Stephen was sufficiently pleased with uh, that, that he thought I should direct uh, Chicago 7. So I didn't make the decision. Uh, he did. And oh, wow. that's how we got here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard you talk about what you call the, the, the demonization of dissent. You know, specifically, you mentioned taking the knee. You know, I can think of, you know, Black Lives Matter protests, you know, uh, criticism or questioning or, or generally standing up and speaking truth to power in general has been demonized, right? And yes. um, I think this year that we're completing has become more relevant to this film, I think, than any of us could have known. We've had this summer of protests and, and, and deep uh, social and political resonances that have arrived, but you, you, you started working on this, as you said, a long time ago. And so can you talk a little bit about um, the, the key themes, if you like, or the key elements that kind of really made you back then, I mean, you talked a little bit about Trump, but made you then say, this is a story that I want to make today. Yeah, well, it's, uh... Chillingly, uh, really, it's been on a 14-year collision course with uh, with events. When I started, as I said, it was I was excited because it was an opportunity to work with Stephen. I didn't really even know the, what story I was going to be telling. Uh, and then, after a long period of of research, I thought, well, this is just a it's a great story to tell. Uh, and I I always didn't want it to be about 1968. I wanted it to be about today. I didn't know, none of us knew just how much about today it was going to be. When we shot the film last winter, we thought it was plenty relevant. We didn't need it to get more relevant. Uh, but then last May, with the police killings of George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, uh, uh, Breonna Taylor, uh, in a number of American cities, protests broke out. And a number of those protests were met again with tear gas and uh, and nightsticks. You mentioned the demonization of uh, of protest. In the last four years, we've been hearing that anyone protesting, athletes, most of them black athletes, uh, taking a knee uh, during the national anthem, 
uh, uh, you know, caused a, an, an outrage here that it was un-American to protest uh, when, of course, nothing could be more American. Mm, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, but, but I, I guess my, my point was that the, the relevancy uh, snuck up on us uh, uh, in a big way. And uh, watching the news at night, watching the news coverage of those uh, clashes between protesters and police, I, I, I just thought to myself, you know, if you just degraded the color a little bit, it would look exactly like the footage that we use from 68. Yes. Yeah, totally understood. And so as you talk about, uh, you know, those two, those two moments in time, you know, this year that's just gone by this summer and, and 1968, that, but I think of another uh, point that I've heard you mention. And, and I think about myself when I'm making period pieces, if you like, which is you have said that this film is a painting. It is not a snapshot of history. And so I'm, I'm really interested to know from your point of view more about how that translates for you as a filmmaker and you're, you're shooting a true story that's set in the past, but it's for an audience today and it's about today. How does that impact what I, it's what I call the vocabulary of the movie, but you know, it can be visual, the choices that you make in telling that story. Well, when you talk about, or when I talk about um, uh, the, it, it being a painting and not a photograph, um, uh, really what I'm talking about is the difference between journalism and, uh, and, and filmmaking. Uh, uh, the difference between journalism uh, and art. Uh, you're, this, the, there's the same debate uh, uh, going on right now uh, with Peter Morgan and, uh, and your government over the Queen. Um, yes. As far as uh, uh, you know, wanting to make it feel like today uh, and not 1968, uh, what I did as a director uh, was just asked everyone, the DP, costume designer, production designer, everyone, don't lean into the 60s. Uh, we're going to be true to the period, but we're not going to flood the frame with peace signs and tie-dye and uh, a psychedelic aesthetic. Uh, that uh, for a score, we weren't going to hear the, the usual 60s protest songbook. Uh, a film like this, you in your head, you're already hearing Fortunate Son and Sympathy for the Devil uh, before it starts. We're not going to do that. It's going to be a film score, a full orchestral score, uh, uh, a, a contemporary score. Daniel Pemberton uh, did a beautiful job with that. Um, anyone who came to this webinar uh, a, a minute early got to hear Celeste singing uh, Hear My Voice, which uh, uh, she and Daniel wrote together and she recorded and uh, it's, I mean, her voice becomes a very haunting character uh, in, in the film. So that's what I did. Yeah, yeah. And I heard you uh, talk somewhere about the fact that you actually were going to have less orchestral music at the beginning. You, you, you were thinking about getting uh, contemporary artists to make, you know, music sounding of the period, but then changed your mind. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, yes, my first thought was uh, what I'll do, again, to build a bridge from 1968 uh, to 2020 is I will use uh, 60s songs, those, the, that, that 60s protest song book, but I will have contemporary artists uh, cover it or sample it and turn it into uh, hip hop. 
it it was a good idea in my head for a minute um uh, and uh and then there were a number of reasons why it wasn't going to work however uh the one thing that i was sticking to and and this is scripted was that right. okay it'll be all original film score uh we won't use any source music except the final cue uh of the film and i just for anybody maybe who hasn't seen uh, the movie i don't want to give a spoiler but it's when Hayden does his thing uh, uh, at the end, the final cue uh, of the film, I had told Daniel Pemberton at the beginning that he wasn't going to get to write the final cue. Composers always, of course, want to write uh, the final cue, that he wasn't going to get to do it because for that, I was going to use Here Comes the Sun. Uh, that, uh, I was going to have some for Here Comes the Sun, and it was going to work fantastically. Uh, um, you know, it's been a long, cold, lonely winter, but here comes the sun. Uh, it seems like things are getting clear. We, we were going to, we were going to feel good. It was going to put a lump in our throat. We were going to get goosebumps and, uh, got into post and it came time to, you know, to work that last scene. And we put a cover of here comes the sun on it and it didn't work at all. Oh, uh, it just... It's one of those things where in your yeah. head, it's great and you were wrong. Um, I, it, it, it didn't work at all. And you know, you panic uh, because it's not just a moment that's not working, it's the final moment, which means the <laughs> film, it, it, it isn't gonna work no matter how well you may have done for the first hour and 59 minutes. Uh, uh, the film wasn't going to work. So I went back to Daniel, said, remember how I told you that you weren't going to write the last cue? Not only do I need you to write the last cue, I need you to write something better than the Beatles wrote. Uh, so, uh, you know, he, he knew what the, what the end game was, what we needed to feel, how it needed to work. And man, he went off and hit it out yeah. of the park. Yeah, he did. He did. He did absolutely. Um, I, we've got our first question in already um, okay. from, from a member. And, and I'm going to add to it as well, this question, because um, Nicholas Connor says, uh, uh, as a writer and director, when you, when you come to um, set, how do you juggle the two? And he says for himself, as someone who in many ways initially came into directing as a way to protect the words and the syllables and the syntax on the page, um, he would very be, much be curious to hear your perspective. And I, I would add to that, Erin, because I would say you're responsible for some of the most iconic lines and dialogue in film culture today, oh, right? Of course, you know, Jack Nicholson's um, You Can't Handle the Truth speech from A Few Good Men comes to mind. And, and for me, I have this um, very definite moment, I think, where as a, as a, as a director who, who first started through writing, I, I step into director mode. I, 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 I cross that threshold um, or at least writer director mode. I don't know if I can ever completely shake the writer, but at least there's a moment where I say, now I'm the writer director. And my question for you is, is there a moment or are you at the point you're writing and, and you've talked a little bit about how this project came to you, but I mean, even going forward, Will you write knowing that you're going to direct something or will you cross that threshold it, or, or is it a, a thing you slip into? How does it work for you? Uh -huh. Well, first of all, so far um, uh, with the with Chicago 7 and before that Molly's Game and yes. even with I'm, I'm going to start directing uh, a, a new film 
uh, we're in prep right now. Uh, yeah. Even with that, I have yet to write a screenplay knowing that I was going to be directing it. I didn't know I was going to be directing Molly's Game when I wrote Molly's Game. Didn't know I was going to be directing Chicago 7 when I, uh, when I wrote that uh, and this next one. That said, I, I don't cross a threshold. I've always been, when I write, whether it's a, a movie, a play, an episode of television, I've always been kind of hyper aware that um, what I write is not meant to be read. It's meant to be performed. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I'm always thinking about that, uh, thinking about what it's what it's going to be like on its feet. Now, until I started directing, um, I uh, instead of visualizing it, I, I hear it uh, uh, mostly. It's it's an oral experience. A U R uh, A L. Um, and uh, then when I started directing it, I had to admit that I guess there is a visual component to cinema. Um, uh, and, uh, and so I had to start pitching. Okay. But I do probably lean more heavily on the DP, on the director of photography uh, uh, and the production designer than uh, other directors do uh, as I'm in my learning phase. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I talk about the idea that I, I don't know if you can ever really shed the writer, but I, I, I mean, I want to talk about this with you a little bit later, but I, I, I pick up on the theme, the sort of rhythms that you write in, um, different for each film, of course, and I've got a question about that in relation to actors kind of later on, but mm -hmm. it's... Uh, do you, uh, do you, there is a point where you have locked the script though, and you are not going to dip back into that script once you're directing or, you know, if, if something is difficult in, a, in an actor's mouth, are you going to, as the writer, feel that you are able to, you know, change those lines or do you think to yourself, okay, no, I know why I wrote this scene the way I wrote this scene and I'm sticking to it. If, if the example that you gave, if I see in rehearsal, uh, that something is difficult coming in, out of an actor's mouth or the actor tells me that, of course, uh, I'm going to adjust it because again, what I'm writing is meant to be performed. Uh, so who cares how great it may have been on the page? No one's ever going to see the page. Um, uh, they're going to see it on screen, right? Uh, yes, so yes. Uh, uh, yes, I'll do that. But uh, uh, but the writing is if not locked, then let's say latched uh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, before we start. That makes me uh, feel, it makes me feel safe. Okay. <laughs> I, I, you know, um, because I also uh, really believe in repetition. Uh, uh, when it's the stuff that I write can get wordy, it can get dense, uh, it can get a little operatic, it can flirt with melodrama. And the way to combat those things is to casualize uh, the language. And that's repetition. Uh, I need to somehow simulate what previews do uh, in the theater, you know, for a play. Um, and uh, I'll be in London, by the way, in June uh, uh, with a new play. Uh, with a play, you have a four, five, six week rehearsal period. And then another four, five, six weeks of previews. 
uh, uh, where, yes, the playwright, you're making little changes. The director uh, is doing things during the day, but it's mostly about repetition so that you can start. The, so like I said, you can casualize the language. It can just be like tossing off your phone number. Uh, yeah. So for that reason, you want you do want to stop writing uh, at a certain point so the actors can just start to own it. It can just be part of their uh, uh, blood supply. The night before, when I get back from the set uh, uh, and get back to the hotel, uh, I'll look at the scene that we're shooting tomorrow um, and just make sure that the, I'll, I'll change a word, I'll add a word, uh, uh, that kind of thing. And that'll be it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, th this is sort of a follow-up and I think it might, it, I, I acknowledge, Aaron, it might be a difficult one for you to answer, but it's one I'm dying to hear the answer to and it's this, that um, your work is a magnet for actors, like there's just no doubt about it and you're able to draw what I think are incredible ensemble cast, just look at the cast of, of, of this latest film of yours and I, what I find incredible is that you, you, you get actors who are used to carrying their own films, very happy to share the spotlight with each other in yours. And so I would be really interested to hear you talk to us about your relationship with actors, first in the writing and, and now as a director. And for you, how does the writing, and you've talked a little bit about it, but how does the writing inform the directing and vice versa in, in creating characters and, and, and in their stories? Now that you are moving on to your third film, are you starting to think about how, and I get that you, you, you're not totally visualizing it, but building a character who is going to have a three-dimensional life now, completely off the page as well, is one informing the other for you as you, as you move through? And are you, you know, even though you might latch the script, are you, you're holding on to the writer, the writer who, birthed the story in the first place, right? Yeah. Uh, first, uh, folded into your question were uh, a number of compliments and I uh, appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yeah. Only the truth. I, um, listen, uh, I, as a writer, I worship at the altar of intention and obstacle. Uh, yeah. That, that's, what drama is. Somebody wants something, something standing in their way of getting it. Um, yeah. uh, they, they want the guy, they want the money, uh, uh, they want to get to Paris. Uh, ditched. If, if they can need it, that's uh, even better. Um, and yeah. as the writer, you put obstacles in front of your hero or heroine, you put obstacles in front of your protagonist, and the manner in which the protagonist tries to overcome that obstacle, whether they're successful or not, whether they win or lose, that is, uh, that's who the character is. In other words, you don't tell the audience uh, who the character is, you show the audience what the character wants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and again, I don't change hats going from writing to directing. So then when I'm on the floor with the actors uh, or around the table, uh, we talk about the intention and obstacle uh, and sticking to that. Um, and listen, when you're working with actors, the caliber of the cast of Chicago 7, you know, when you're working with Mark Rylance um, and Sasha and Yaya Abdul-Mateen and uh, Jeremy Strong, Eddie, that when you're working with that cast, 
I felt like when I got to the set every morning, somebody was tossing me the keys to a Formula One race car. And all I had to do was not put the car in the wall uh, and these actors were going to win the race. Uh, and sometimes, you know, that's the reality, right? As directors, we have to, part of the judgment I think we have to make is when to get out of the way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when, when to step out of the way and when to, when to step in and, 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 and really be useful to the process. And I, I think you're right. When you see the dynamic, sometimes you, 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 you yeah. let the moment live. Yeah, uh, uh, you're right uh, when you talk about as directors uh, on knowing when to step out of the way. So to find out the answer to that uh, of when do you step out of the way, and I'm sure it's different with uh, with every actor. Million dollar question. I went and talked to an actor I've worked with a lot, Jeff Daniels, uh, okay? Uh, and I said, uh, Jeff, you're making a movie. Uh, how much do you want the director in your face uh, and and how much do you not? Um, what, what's the amount of talking you want to hear from the director? Oh, interesting. He said, during rehearsal, as much as you want. Um, uh, uh, get in my face, as, tell me anything, as, as much as you want. Once we start shooting, if it's between takes, say it in five words or less. Wow. Okay, so I, I liked the sound of that. That made sense to me. And I had a hunch that that would be something other actors would appreciate too, that, yeah. Uh, yeah. that Jeff wasn't alone in that. So what I have to do is get the actors to a place where on the day we're shooting, all I have to say to them, if I have to say anything at all, is a little hotter, a little colder, slow it down, take your time. Don't take your time, speed it up. Um, uh, uh, so it's hot, cold, fast, slow. Uh, uh, it's those kind of notes. Yeah, I, I, I totally hear that. I, I see that we we have two, and I'm sorry, Aaron, if I look away, it's because I'm looking down at an iPad so I can read some of the questions I from- I think we're all used uh, to Zoom now and strange eyelines. Right, exactly. So I have this one question here, which is from Laura Push, um, Pushkin, and she asks, um, the way the film intercuts between different storytellers to structure the narrative. How much was that down to what was originally written in the script and how much was that down to recrafting in the edit? I've got that question coming up a bit later as well. I wanna delve a bit more into the edit a bit later, but how much of it was 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 uh, uh, in the script? How much evolved? Okay. Without taking anything away from the enormous contribution of our editor, uh, Alan Baumgarten. Yes. The, the, the film that you're seeing is, is what you would read. Uh, in, in yeah. Uh, yeah. I, like I said, there, there was a long research period and with me, that's always followed by a long period of climbing the walls, uh, uh, just pacing around thinking there's, you, this is it. Uh, um, you, you're not, this is the one where you're going to be found out uh, uh, as a fraud. I have no ideas. Uh, I've used all the words I know and every order I know uh, uh, to use them. I'm not going to be able to write this movie. I don't know how to start. But that, that always goes away, even though you think it, it won't. During that period, what happened was the film organized itself into three stories uh, for me. It, the courtroom drama uh, was one. The evolution of the riot uh, was the second. How did what was supposed to be a peaceful protest turn into such a violent clash with the police and the National right. Guard? And the third was that uh, personal tension between Abby and Tom, Sasha and... Uh, and Eddie, two guys on the same side who 
plainly can't stand each other, uh, and they each think that the other is doing harm to the cause. Uh, and those three stories uh, worked well together. Uh, there And there are, uh, in a courtroom drama, all kinds of opportunities for different points of view, right? Because you have different witnesses uh, taking the stand. On top of which, um, like a gift from heaven, on the weekends, these guys, uh, in order to pay for their defense, they went out to colleges and they sold out college auditoriums by standing up there and talking about the trial. Mm -hmm. Abby was the was 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 the best at it, or the most colorful at it. He, he had a Lenny Bruce quality to him, and he turned it into stand up. And so the fact that I could go to that uh, uh, once in a while um, uh, was a, a, another gift of narration. A really um, um, sort of necessary part of the story were moments of respite you gave us actually with some of those moments where you could, you, you know, you could smile to yourself because of course, again, without spoiling it for people who haven't seen it, you know, this, for me, the film, the film is building to many things, but there's one particular point in the film that it builds to, which is that, you know, the, the, let's just say the big moment in the courtroom with the tape, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the tape across the face. And it, it's, it's so distressing. And, uh, you know, we see movies with violence and we see movies with blood and all sorts of things, but, but sometimes it's, it's, it's just something as degrading and as humiliating as happened in that courtroom that kind of climbs under your skin and you can't you can't shed it for for weeks and 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 that's the effect it had on me you know so those moments of of, of respite as well without leaving behind the real weight of what this movie is about well um, you know it's cool. interesting because we were just talking about uh you know how do you know how much to talk to an actor how do you know how to work with an actor uh on a set basically and yeah. the day that we shot uh, the scene, I'll, 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 it's tough. You and I are both having a hard time trying to talk about it without giving uh, away spoilers. Yeah. The day we shot the, the scene that you're talking about, uh, uh, okay, yeah. where he is being, look, he, he's being bound and gagged. They won't uh, okay. know who it is. If they haven't right. seen they won't know which one it is. The way we, the, the day we shot, and, and uh, just to address the first part of what you were saying, I always feel like if you can tell a serious story with a sense of humor, if you can tell a serious story funny, you're doing yourself uh, a favor. But the day we shot uh, the half of the scene where he's being bound and gagged, what's going on on the other side of the door. Mm -hmm. You know, that was just Yaya and four big white uh, uh, US marshals really manhandling him. Uh, and even though it was going to be extremely tight close-ups, like just his ankle as a, 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 as a shackle is clapped on it, uh, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, I knew, I knew this actor. Uh, I, I loved this actor. Um, and my first instinct would be between takes, because it's, it's an upsetting thing uh, uh, that you're reliving. Uh, and by the way, we happened to, oh shoot, I can't say this without it being a spoiler. I've heard you talk about this before, you shot another scene, a, 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 another upsetting moment uh, on that day. Right? That, that day we shot two upsetting scenes 
for yeah. Yaya. And through a grim coincidence of scheduling, it happened to be yeah. the 50th anniversary of the terrible thing that happened uh, uh, during the trial. When we were shooting that part where, where Yaya is being shackled, my first instinct was to go to him uh, uh, between takes, say, how are you doing? Uh, you doing all right? You want to take a break? Uh, are you okay? And then it occurred to me, maybe this is the last thing Yaya wants. Uh, uh, as a professional actor, he's trying to give a performance uh, here. Uh, maybe he wants to stay in this place of I'm powerless um, uh, and uh, and I'm being manhandled. Maybe the last thing he wants is for the director to be nice to him uh, uh, right now. You just, uh, uh, you know, you, you kind of, you have your own compass and also uh, there's never anything wrong with asking. Um, yeah, yeah, you want me to come to you? Or you want me to stay away? That there's, there's no sort of um, formula. It's different for every actor. and you. Of course it is. Yeah, yeah, so ask. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, I, 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 like I said, I, I've directed all of two movies now. Um, uh, so I don't have a, a lot of wisdom to impart. Uh, but I, I let the actors know, um, if I'm doing something uh, uh, you have a problem with, come to me and tell me. I just want to create a place where you can give the kind of performance that made me want to cast you in the first place. That, you know, that really brings me to, to a question. And um, Mark Aldridge, I'm going to ask your question next. I'm going to throw this one in and then I'm coming to your question next. But that brings me to, um, to, to, to this question, which uh, also might be, I don't know, one that's a bit, a bit difficult for you to answer. Let me know. But you've, you've said that the sound of words is as important to you as their meaning, which I can really appreciate and love. And I wondered whether what you've just said to me about you know, how, how you deal with actors, I have a couple more questions about that coming up, but whether what you just said to me and the fact that the way you talk about language, the way you deal with language, the way you relate to language, whether you think your playwright background and your love of language and your rhythm and the sound of language and then, you know, the way of being able to assemble dialogue so that it's a very, very powerful tool for people who have the talent, actors, to work with, whether that, I have always wondered whether that's part of um, why actors are so very attracted to you. I mean, there's a thousand reasons why, why they'd be attracted to your work, but I wonder if it's because the very, the key tool that they work with, which is, which is language and which, you know, creates the, if you like, the framework for the other bit that I love, which is what goes on between the lines. Well, what goes on between the lines isn't relevant unless you have the lines right. right. Do you think that that's part of it or is it something that is just, you're too in it to be aware of it? You know, um, it's funny. I, I, I am not really aware of the fact that uh, that my writing style is um, much different than uh, than anyone else's. Uh, a, a little aware. I, I don't want to be disingenuous, um, but. Uh, I, I'm not actually aware of some of the things that other people point out. Uh, what happened to me was this. <laughs> the, the damage I incurred as a child was, was this. My parents took me to see plays all the time um, uh, for no particular reason, except they had a theater going habit when they were young and theater tickets were affordable. 
uh, uh, back then. But they started taking me to see plays starting from when I was very young, including plays that I was too young to understand um, uh, or too dumb to understand. Like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf when I was nine years old? Things like that. So I often didn't understand what was going on on stage, but I loved the sound of dialogue. I loved the sound of great actors um, uh, with these words that were crashing into each other. It all sounded like music to me. Uh, a monologue was an aria, uh, a, a staccato duet, um, uh, 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 an argument became a, stop, a, a staccato duet, that kind of thing. And I wanted to imitate that sound as a writer. Uh, so it's, it's really this, you, you asked me, you know, is my playwriting background influencing it? It's, I am not really a screenwriter um, uh, in the traditional sense or a, a television writer in the traditional sense. I am a playwright who is getting away with, with these things. And we love that. I mean, I, I totally hear you on that. That resonates with me deeply. Um, and, uh, you know, as someone who was raised in London and you know, kind of was raised around the, the West End and, and by the way, also went to, I went to stage school, not theatre school, but, um, but stage school. So from the age of 10 to 16, I, I hear it, I hear it and I feel that in your work. And it's, it's one of the things that has always made me wonder whether, you know, whether consciously or subconsciously actors feel that too. And there's a, uh, there's a great authenticity that comes, I think, with, uh, I think, starting work life in, in the theatre, frankly. I think so, too. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so many people in the Chicago 7 cast have, have a strong theatre background, strong stage background. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Mark Rylance and, and yeah, so many. Rylance, Eddie, Alex Sharp. Um, yes. Uh, Frank Langella. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel that I, I, uh, I, I promised Mark that I'd come to his question. So here it is. He says, as a writer-director who started in the theatre, there you go. Do you find it easy to allow your cast to influence rhythm and pace? And can I add to that question? Can I ask, is it, do you write iambic beat? Or is that, uh, is that- I'm sorry, do I write? Iambic beat to iambic oh. beat. There is, um, it, it's not iambic, but uh, there is a rhythm uh, uh, to what I'm writing. Uh, and yeah. the, uh, the actors, especially, you know, when you're doing a TV series, when you're doing something like The West Wing, um, and you are working with the same actors uh, uh, week after week for years, uh, uh, 22 episodes. We, we do 22 episodes over here uh, uh, in a season. Uh, 22 episodes a year for several years, they become world's leading experts uh, on how to do this. And they will know um, after a take, they'll go up to the script supervisor and they'll say, I dropped this syllable uh, uh, somewhere. It, that's supposed to be one syllable longer. And it sounds funny. Oh, just like if you were writing music in 4-4 time and you wrote a measure that only had three beats, you, you can't do it, the, uh, uh, the math doesn't work. Um, yeah. So the actors are, are very, very good at knowing that. Yeah. However, there's also room for someone like Mark Rylance, who 
has this is the man who has his own rhythm whether he's on or off camera <laughs> okay he's talking about marching to the beat of his own drummer he does it and he marches beautifully um uh but he has uh an unusual and irres irresistible uh a rhythm in his language that i didn't write uh into the language uh, he's, he's kind of, if we're going to continue the jazz metaphor, uh, the music metaphor, he's kind of doing a jazz riff, uh, on it without changing a word. It, it's, um, I, 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 I know what you mean and I hear what you're saying. I, I, it, when I saw him in this movie, um, I still felt, I felt the collaboration between the two of you. So I felt the collaboration between your, you know, your words, your, you know, the world that you had created for this film and what, what the brilliant Mark, you know, brings to everything he's in, basically. So it was, yeah. a, um, it, it felt, it felt good. I went to performing arts school. I was terrible. I can't <laughs> act. I was a kid actor. I got out of it real fast and began writing and eventually directing. I'm always asked, um, did, has that history, you know, that, that experience influenced the way you come working with actors? And I wondered in the two films that you've directed so far, do you think your, um, your, your background at performing arts school, um, and you, you told me earlier, musical theatre, musical theatre, does that influence uh, the, the way you treat actors? And, and actually you're so sensitive as well to, to what they may or may not need and, and when or when isn't the right time um, to offer them what they may or may not need. Is that influenced yourself by, by some performing a little bit that you did? It absolutely influences it. And it, it does it before the directing happens even. It, it influences the writing. I am very physical uh, when I'm writing. I'm talking out loud. I'm, I'm saying all the lines out loud. I'm acting it all out. I'm jumping up and down from my desk, walking around. Uh, if It doesn't happen often, but if I suddenly really grab hold uh, of the scene and I know I can do it, I'm almost, I'm too excited to be, typing it, I'm, I'm acting it out, I'm playing it, and I'm not paying much attention to my surroundings uh, uh, while I'm doing it. So I have ended up blocks away from my office uh, uh, while I've been writing a scene, just because I've been kind of walking down the street doing it. Um, I've been told uh, uh, somebody was once next to me at a red light, uh, our, our cars were next together, and they told me that I looked like a madman because um, I was alone in my car, just plainly having an argument with somebody who uh, who wasn't there. So uh, that was all a very long way of saying um, I uh, and it's it's because of that, uh, of those old days when I wanted to be an actor, uh, that I'm just making sure these lines are speakable, uh, uh, you know, that the last thing I want um, the last thing I want is for the actor to, for part of their job to be to make it work. Um, uh, I, the last thing I want is for their job to be to take this clunky line and somehow make it not uh, uh, clunky. Uh, uh, that's not yeah. their job. That's cleaning up after me. Um, uh, I, I, I want to start them off further down the field. I hear you on that one. Um, 
I want to ask one more question, which is a big one, before um, I then start asking a, a lot of questions that we've got coming in from um, members as we as we head into our last fifteen or thirty minutes or so. Um, and so, my my final question: I've I've seen you on a number in a number of interviews, being uh, sort of talking about the production design of of your latest film. And I see your eyes light up. I see how inspired you are by the work and the creativity when you talk about the production design. And I'm interested to know how you work with your heads of department once you're in prep and once you do start filming, how are you sharing and conveying ideas? And I'm always interested with other directors, you know, do you use mood boards? Um, uh, do you sit and watch lots of movies with your, with your DP and, you know, with your production designer? How are you, what is your, uh, and I, it could be different for each film, but what is your sort of um, route of choice to really sort of ensure that you're all on the same page and you're conveying what you want, really? The first thing I have to do is make it clear to them, uh, the production designer, uh, that they are talking to someone who has no visual sensibility uh, at all. Uh, and that I'm not even sure I have the vocabulary to be able to talk to the production designer about what I'm looking for. Uh, and then they uh, are very nice about assuring me, in this case, uh, uh, Shane Valentino was our production designer, about assuring me, don't worry, um, uh, we're gonna, we'll, we'll find some common vocabulary. Uh, and, you know, we'll just start talking. Uh, and I'll start talking about things that are important to me. And I, I'm not able to talk uh, with the kind of technical specificity that, uh, that, that another director uh, uh, might be able to uh, talk with. But if I'm, for instance, right now, I mentioned the, the, the film that's in prep. Uh, I'm working with a production designer uh, uh, who, who I love. And one of my favorite films of his uh, is Quiz Show uh, uh, that he designed. And the film that we're prepping happens to take place uh, in the same period uh, and in Hollywood. So I'll tell him what I loved about his Art Deco design uh, in Quiz Show. And oh. then he'll start to come back to me with sketches and mood boards and uh, things like that. He'll start showing me pictures uh, and he'll start showing me drawings. Um, just the way uh, uh, with the with the DP uh, in in this case, uh, Faden Papa Michael, uh, I'll say, listen. Somehow, in in twenty five years, I've managed to absorb none of the science of filmmaking. Uh, okay, uh, I could not pick a long lens out of a police lineup. I just like I know I like the way it looks when uh, something shot through a long lens. He said, don't worry about it. Here's what's going to happen. Right. Here's what's going to happen. Um, uh, I'm going to call you over. You're going to look through the viewfinder. And if you like what you see, uh, we'll shoot it. And if you don't, <laughs> we'll change it. Um, and sometimes extremely talented people are good at simplifying things. Uh, you know, I remember I got to work. I wrote the last movie that Mike Nichols directed uh, before he died, Charlie Wilson's War. Mike Nichols, a hero to everyone. And I remember at the first table read, 
Uh, there must have been 80 people uh, uh, around a giant table, you know, from the studio and it was a big cast and uh, Tom Hanks and Philip Seymour Hoffman. But I was dying to see what Mike Nichols was going to say to the actors before the table read. What incredible wisdom uh, uh, was going to come from Mike before this table read. And here's what he said. Uh, and here's all he said. He said, here's how you do this script. Start talking as soon as you start talking as soon as it's your turn and don't stop talking until your turn is over. All yeah. he was just telling him, guys, it's pace. Um, uh, it's pace. Watch. Just do it at the right pace and the scene will show itself to you. Uh, and uh, again, sometimes incredibly brilliant people uh, uh, can just boil it down to something so simple as start talking as yeah. soon as it's your turn and don't stop talking until your turn is over. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Just as we go into the last few minutes, I can see all these questions coming up. So Aaron, I'm gonna try and get in as many as I can now. With members okay, and I'll try to shorten my answers. That was a great, um, that was very useful for me, that last answer actually. And, and by the way, just going back to, uh, I, yeah, I don't know, a, a naughty 40 lens from a nifty 50. I just say what I want. <laughs> I this much and, and yeah, and, and somehow- Okay, and it's, and you know it doesn't matter, right? I know like, it, it doesn't, know the never, it's never, in, in 10 years, it's never bothered me. Not at there all, not at all. I and I'll see bet that you before this is all over, both of us learned what they are. Right. <laughs> yeah, I believe in our capacity to get better. I have a question here from Suzanne who says, um, which writers and directors, other writers and directors inspire you? Um, did Vietnam veteran Oliver Stone and his platoon uh, and his platoon and born on the 4th of July influence your approach to the trial of the Chicago 7? Did, did either of those films or both? have an impact or influence? Thanks for the question, Suzanne. Uh, obviously those are both great films and Oliver Stone is a great uh, filmmaker. Uh, no, those, uh, those weren't influences. Uh, I'm, I'm crazy about courtroom dramas. And so my influences were bound to be Inherit the Wind, uh, uh, 12 Angry Men, that kind of thing. Yes, yes. Um, okay, Chris Purchase asks, in Chicago 7, you wrote every word, scene setting, and even scripted a lot of the cuts. So with that much upfront specificity, I can never say this word. Chris, what you put in there? Um, Me too. I always have to slow down before I get to the word. It's very hard. Um, what were your directorial, uh, your directional surprises um, making this good or bad? that were good or bad, I guess he's asking. Directional surprises that were uh, good or bad. Um, yeah. you listen, sort of there, were, there were visual things uh, uh, where I can look at it and say, gee, this, there's no texture or, um, or, or contrast uh, at, at all. Why did I put Eddie in a white shirt in front of a white wall? Um, uh, uh, this, it looks like a home movie for a second. Um, so plenty of things like that. Uh, I, I have never written anything that I didn't wish I could have back and, and write again. Uh, uh, so I could have a chance to write it better. So the, 
there are plenty of things like that throughout. Um, it's, uh, I'm sorry that I have to kind of learn on the job in front of a paying public, uh, but uh, th there are believe me, plenty of mistakes to learn from. Uh, I think, uh, I think you're good to a certain extent, right? And uh, even if you're lucky enough to go to film school and, and I wasn't, um, but even if you are, you know, I like to think it's a bit like, right, uh, drive, learning to drive a car, right? You, you, you have your lessons and you're on the road, but then, you know, you get out there on your own for the first time. And, and, and often that feels like the first time you're really, you know, driving the car. So we're all That's learning. right. But you know what else? Um, uh, you mentioned film school. I've always been envious of uh, friends of mine who, uh, who got master's degrees in playwriting uh, from from great playwriting programs like Yale or University of Iowa, uh, and uh, when I asked one of them, just just tell me what what were the classes you took? I'm sure that there was stuff that you learned. I'm sure I've got these big gaps uh, in my understanding of of playwriting. And he said that the really valuable thing uh, about whether it's film school or a master's program in playwriting, it gives you a chance to write the worst plays you're ever going to write. Uh, with right. no consequences. Right. Um, and uh, uh, believe me, I'm not complaining. Um, uh, it's a glamorous problem, but uh, both as a, as a playwright, as a screenwriter, and as a director, um, I, I, I haven't had an apprenticeship. I've, um, yeah. I'm, I'm learning yeah. in front of everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I feel I feel you. I feel you. Um, uh, I hope I'm saying uh, Mandy's last name right. Mandy Riggi or Mandy Riggi asks, looking back at your amazing career, what would you do differently in terms of advice for other writers and directors? Uh, Mandy, my career is ridiculous. Uh, uh, my dream, uh, when I got out of school, I came to New York. Uh, I, I, I won't go into the story of how I suddenly discovered that what I wanted to be was a playwright and not an actor. Uh, but my dream simply was to uh, be able to pay my bills with the money I earned writing, to be able to pay the rent, pay the phone bill, uh, uh, and, and eat uh, every month. Uh, from the money that I made writing. And that's not a modest goal, uh, okay? Yeah. It's, it, it's, a, yeah. it, it's a, uh, difficult uh, to do that. In my wildest dreams, I didn't imagine anything like uh, getting to work with the actors that I, I just worked with, um, uh, the getting, getting to do something like this, uh, 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 being asked, just being asked, to, to do this, being someone that people sought advice from. I did, none of that I ever imagined. So uh, I don't have a single complaint about my career. It's just that it's, it didn't happen the way most careers happened. Uh, I just, it, it was a, a lightning struck. I happened to write this play, A Few Good Men, um, uh, that when I was young, uh, uh, when I was in my mid twenties, I, and, uh, and things took off from there. It's not the way it usually happens. Mm -hmm. 
understood, completely understood. Um, Kieran Bourne says, did Molly's Game feel like your first film as you've been in the industry for so long? What did you learn about your writing going into Chicago 7? Ooh. Yeah, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, Molly's Game felt like, uh, uh, you know, the first day at a new school um, uh, uh, that uh, I, I wasn't sure what I was doing and that everybody was going to know that. Um, but then once the work begins, again, for me, it's just a continuation of the writing process. Uh, what I wrote was meant to be performed. Just the way music is not meant to be read off a page of sheet music, it's meant to be performed and listened to. Uh, and so I don't think it would be unusual for the composer to be able to talk to the musicians about uh, uh, you know, when the violin should ease up and how the horn should come in. Um, uh, going from Molly's Game to Chicago 7 was also uh, a shock to the system uh, because uh, Molly's Game, like pretty much everything I've written, takes place in rooms. Uh, it's, it's people talking in rooms. In Chicago 7, suddenly there's tear gas and riots, violence. Uh, I had never written any of those things, much less directed them. I am, you know, they say... I, I promise short answers and I'm not living up to that promise. But they say when you um, when you bring home a new puppy that you're supposed to get a crate that's just big enough for the puppy to be able to turn around in, but no bigger because yeah. uh, those that tight space is comforting uh, for them. I'm the same way. Uh, I'm not as cute uh, uh, as a puppy, but I need four walls, um, an intention and an obstacle. That's why I like yeah, courtrooms. Yeah. Uh, uh, four walls and the intention are not score very clear. Uh, going outside, going into Grant Park, Michigan Avenue, staging uh, riots. Um, uh, what, that, that was, again, uh, like first day at, uh, at a new school. Uh, but there was plenty that I learned on Molly's Game that I was able to, uh, uh, to bring along, including don't ever give up on the take. Um, uh, a number of times, five, six times, I remember on Molly's game, uh, after eight takes, uh, I think, you know, it's not great, but it's not going to get better than this and it's fine. Um, uh, and you need to make your day. Uh, don't, don't ever do that. Uh, um, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I always feel that it's not quite the same, but it, I guess it's similar in a way. I always say, you know, if you have a bad day on set, I, when I say a bad day, I just mean you feel bad. You don't feel great. Yeah. You don't feel particularly inspired or motivated. You, it will never leave you. You will all, that, that moment that you shot, that you can't, you know, you can't edit out of your film because you need it to tell the story. That's will right. haunt you for so you've got to come in at 120 every single day because otherwise, you know, you feel better tomorrow, but the movie still has that moment in That's it, right. you know. That's right. Um, uh, yeah. I have, I have this, uh, oh, just as a member asks, and I hope I'm, I'm going to try and get two more questions in. I'm going to try and okay. read them together, two questions together. Um, a, a member, one first question, a member asks, I understand that Aaron outlined a lot of his script, but with scripts based on true stories, does Aaron have a different approach to outlining or planning ahead with the writing? I'm going to leave, I'll, 
I'll end that question there because I think it's a, di a difficult um, one for me to add another one to. So with, okay, is there a difference? Well, I, way that you I think I can answer that quickly, which is that mm. I do not uh, write an outline or at least I haven't yet. Uh, I've, I've never written an outline. Uh, and I've never um, known what the whole movie was going to be when I was starting it. There's, if it's nonfiction, uh, uh, there's that research period. Then, as I said, there's the climbing the walls period. And then I just think, start thinking about how, how to open the movie, okay? And the rest of it is like walking in the dark with a flashlight. Um, uh, you can only see a few feet in front of you, but the more you keep walking, uh, uh, the, the, the more you're seeing, right? So uh, if I can put, I have a corkboard uh, uh, right here, index cards. If I know the first scene uh, and the second scene and the third scene, start writing, uh, yes. start writing. The yes. difference between being on page two and page nothing for me is the, is life and death. Uh, yes. Okay. So yes. start writing, start walking forward with the flashlight. And it's entirely possible that when you get to the third scene, you are going to know then what the next three scenes are uh, after yes. that index cards. Uh, I'll put them on the wall. Uh, I totally agree. And um, I'm in outline hell at the moment. So um, I'm sorry to um, hear that. Yeah, so um, it's reassuring, reassuring to hear you say that. I do have this last question from Chris Rajan. Okay. Um, and uh, Chris says, how do you approach casting? Good question. Do you have ideas beforehand? Do you write with actors in mind? Great question, Chris. You're all, um, also very modest for a bona fide of theatre and cinema, I would agree. Oh, this is very, very nice of both of you. Um, I've never written uh, with an actor in mind. Uh, like I said, I, I'm always the one playing all the parts, men, women, uh, everything. When it comes to casting, there's a great casting director I've worked with for a long time, Francine Maisler. Uh, and uh, I'll have some ideas. She'll have some better ideas. Uh, you, you get in a room with the people, uh, you start working with them uh, and uh, you know, I've, I've been incredibly lucky with uh, the actors that I've gotten to work with uh, over the years, television stage uh, and film. Uh, and uh, so I'd say that luck was part of it too. Wow. Um, but I'm also, let me, let, let, let me add this. Um, mm -hmm. I am a big believer in uh putting the best athletes on the field. Um, uh, it, it, find great actors. Um, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't worry, does Mark Rylance look like uh, a William Kunstler? Who cares? It's Mark Rylance. He's great. Um, uh, it, it looks enough like William Kunstler. Uh, put good actors out there, good things will happen. Yeah, I love that. I, I completely agree. You know, cast authentically to who's going to make an audience feel, who's going to you know, convey the story in the best way, not who's the looky-likey. That's right. Um, I totally, I totally agree. Um, Erin, this is one last question for, um, from me before we end, and, and I'm really interested to know what can we expect from Aaron Sorkin, the director, going forward. I'm really pleased that you mentioned that you're in prep already. Are you able to tell us anything about your next movie? I'm not allowed to. 
I, I wish I could. Um, uh, I'm excited about it, and I don't like withholding information from you. Uh, but it should be announced really any day now. Um, uh, and once that happens, I'll talk to you about it all you want. But um, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Well, we, I'm, we are. A, it's been a complete privilege, a complete uh, pleasure to be um, able to, as I said at the beginning, you know, explore. Uh, a little part of your mind, of your very big mind over this last hour. Thank you so much for joining us. It, it, I know so many of us as members and as, as working directors out there have gotten so much out of this conversation. Oh, uh, you've been so generous with your answers and we are very grateful to you. Aaron Silkin, thank you so, so much. It was a real honor. Thanks very much. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.